The next case presents the interesting and not rare situation of a patient who wants to be in control of her therapy, perhaps a little bit beyond what her physician recommends. She's a 56-year-old woman who was treated in 2002 for locally advanced ERPR negative, HER2 positive disease, and received six cycles of neoadjuvant TAC, resulting in a partial tumor response, followed by mastectomy and radiation therapy. Because there was significant residual disease, including 33 positive nodes at surgery, she received six cycles of capecitabine, but just a few months later, in 2003, presented with local recurrence. She had noted a development of an erythemic rash involving the right chest wall, initially in the radiation field, but then it progressed beyond the radiation field, and clearly you could not attribute it to any type of radiation recall phenomenon and underwent a biopsy of the skin, which demonstrated metastatic carcinoma involving dermal lymphatics, and then relatively quickly had more progression on the chest wall. Had some imaging studies that showed somewhat equivocal disease in the mediastinum and hilum, but most of the disease was where you could see it and feel it. In May of 2004, at this time, she was initiated on weekly paclitaxel and Herceptin, She had not received her septin as part of her upfront management. The data wasn't available then as to its benefit and received the Herceptin through March of 2005. So for about 10 months when she developed new skin lesions, again biopsied and showed the same pathology and was switched to Herceptin with Navalbean through July of 2006 when, again, the systemic disease outside of the chest was well-controlled but developed, again, new skin lesions consistent with progression. At that point, I decided to stop the Herceptin combination-type treatment and gave her a single dose of Doxel. And within several days of receiving Doxel, came to the office with really a horrendous-looking erythemic cellulitis involving the right chest wall. And actually an abscess underneath requiring surgical drainage, an extended course of antibiotics, but really one of the worst, I guess, radiation recall reactions I had seen. And certainly I wasn't going to go back to challenging the woman again with Doxel and didn't really have a lot of options, but went with Herceptin and Gemcitabine for several months with clear progression of the skin lesion, so refractory to that combination. That brought us up to April of last year, 2007, where lapatinib was approved, and I started the patient on capecitabine and lapatinib. I wasn't too enthusiastic about the capecitabine, given that she had had it before when she had progressed initially, but the patient wanted to follow the approval of the drug. And we did both, but I ended up dropping the capecitabine after a few cycles because the skin toxicity was more than she was willing to tolerate. What exactly did she have? I would say it was about grade two hand and foot syndrome. And I think a lot of people would have found that to be acceptable, but for her it wasn't. And I didn't think the capecitabine was probably going to play that much of a role and just continue her on the lapatinib alone. What dose of capecitabine was she on? She was on three grams a day. So what happened? She has remained on the lapatinib as a single agent for now 11 months and has really on exam no visible disease. She has actually lowered the dose twice. She's down to 750 milligrams. 
you know, she says it's for her toxicity, but when you talk to her, I think she's just trying to see how little she can get away with. Before she lowered some, it or you lowered well, it? Well, she let me know. Hmm. She would call me well, on the why phone. Why was she doing that? Well, and you'll be able to add to this. She felt that she was getting rash again. It wasn't terrible, but it was starting to redevelop. Rash or hand foot? Rash predominantly in the hands, but also, she said, in her groin. I didn't actually see it. These were via phone conversations and that she had decided to lower the dose. When you really talk to her, I think she has some, I hope, so to speak, that it's not the lapatinib that's keeping the disease under control. It's that the disease is not there to be controlled, mm. that she doesn't need it. So she doesn't need it. Yeah. What was your assessment of her in that regard? Yeah, I think that's about right. <laughs> what did she say? <laughs> Actually, she expressed a lot of concerns about what the treatment was doing to her internal organs, you know, concern that, you know, it might be causing problems. And I think we both tried to reassure her that it probably wasn't causing a great deal of difficulty. You know, I think on some level, this is, you know, it's a little bit of magical thinking, if you will, that we all engage in and our patients engage in. And, you know, you start doing well for a prolonged period of time. And you hope that it's not just about the treatment, that it's a about something more fundamental that's happened. Maybe it's really gone. And, you know, the fact is, it's not always about the treatments we give. So, you know, this is based in reality and maybe, again, a little bit in magic. But I think that in her, given this whole history, you know, what this suggests is that, you know, she has disease that is very sensitive to her two-directed therapy. You know, her cancer, unfortunately, just blew right through the initial chemotherapy you know, 33 positive nodes in spite of preoperative TAC, disease that progressed on capecitabine. And in spite of that, it's now roughly four years later, a little more than four years later, four and a half years since she developed disease progression in late 03. And she has been on a series of treatments that have involved her two directed therapy. This last one, you know, most remarkably is the one that involves single agent her two directed therapy. And the therapies have really worked very, very well. So is your assessment she's having an objective response to lapatinib? Absolutely. And as I discussed with her, because she has somewhat of a disbelief that the treatment's helping, that if she weren't on the lapatinib, we would be back where we were when she really had very difficult to manage skin disease. I mean, there's nothing objective to see. I mean, she's had a at least to visual inspection, you know, a clinical complete response. Now, you said she had sort of a breakdown ulceration from the doxal mm -hmm. reaction. Does she still have that now? Yeah. Her mastectomy site, the most lateral aspect, is still open with a small ulcer that will now, you know, it's not going to completely heal, much less than it was before. Part of her thinking, I guess, in the magical thinking is she regularly asks about, well, when can I have the reconstruction? Because she does not see herself as done with the cancer until she can have that breast reconstructed. My answer has always been never. Unless things change in the management of breast cancer, for I would not want that area reconstructed. But I think she brings it up just sort of testing whether, you know, is it possible that I'm cured, that, you know, you'll allow a reconstruction in the future? How much of an issue is it for her to have a mastectomy without reconstruction? She's a single woman. Yeah, it's actually a fairly big issue. Her husband passed away 
a couple of years before she was diagnosed, she has a lot of friends who most of them are married. She's very socially active. At times she breaks down and says, no one will ever want me because, you know, obviously that's not always the case. But for her, it's a very big issue. I think this is a case where, you know, unfortunately, she simply can't have a reconstruction. I mean, you know, one is not going to start doing surgery in this area where she's had a mastectomy and radiotherapy and where she's had wound problems. And on top of that, where she's had recurrent disease. And for all one knows, one would be going through, you know, residual microscopic disease there. So unfortunately, this is one of these situations where, you know, there just isn't any way of accommodating this particular wish. It's probably worth mentioning what to do after this because, you know, it's pretty likely, although, you know, one never knows for sure, pretty likely that something's going to develop at some point in time. You know, at ASCO this year, there will be reported the randomized trial of lapatinib versus lapatinib plus trastuzumab, which suggests that lapatinib alone in patients with progressive disease on trastuzumab has low-level activity, but that the combination was superior, a statistically significant improvement in, I believe, both response and time to progression, although we're waiting to see those data. But in any case, there was superiority in terms of the combination. And, you know, here there's really no roadmap, but, you know, given what is to date, you know, almost a year on single-agent lapatinib and a fair amount of time off trastuzumab, I would be inclined when there's disease progression just to add some trastuzumab and see what happens and follow her. What about bringing the dose back up of the lapatinib? Would you well, do that first? That would certainly be an option. And in fact, I might gently try to encourage her before then to just bring the dose up maybe to 1,000, which would be an acceptable dose. Yeah, and that would be more acceptable to her. What she really wants to avoid is being back on IVs. And as we were talking, this is a woman for years was seen in the office at least every other week, who now we see every three months and do a lot of our management over the phone. So she's had so much freedom on an oral agent that I'm sure she would prefer to go up on the dose as the first maneuver. So she notices a big difference now, quality life-wise? Absolutely. She's also someone who is potentially a very good candidate for, you know, a whole range of different studies that are now available looking at the next generation of HER2-directed agents, including HSP90 inhibitors, which are being evaluated, the trastuzumab metansinoid conjugate called TDM1. There's a whole new class of PI3 kinase inhibitors that are entering or have recently entered clinical trials. This is a situation where the landscape's going to change a lot over the next few years, although in the short term, it's all in the context of clinical trials. Any sense about this lady's level of compliance given her self-dose de-escalation? You think she's actually taking the medicines? Yes, because I think she's not afraid to tell me when she isn't. And I think she is taking the medicine. When she initially told you about her concerns about these skin things, did you mm-hmm. sort of try to kind of talk her out of it to keep her on the same dose? Yes. And she just didn't want to hear about it? Well, she'd already made the switch. She was just sort of notifying me. <laughs> I would think that this is a situation that based on my limited interaction where there's relatively limited ability for Mike to be able to influence a decision that's been made. So she comes across as a pretty strong-willed woman. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Interesting. What about this issue of radiation recall and doxel? 
What have you observed in that regard, Eric? Well, you know, it can happen with doxorubicin, and it can happen with doxel as well. You know, I haven't seen it very frequently, but I don't think it's surprising that it would happen. And, you know, given the fact that doxel tends to hang around in the system for longer, I would imagine that, if anything, it could potentially be more of a problem there. But I don't know if there are enough cases reported to know. Just one final thing about her, again, as a person, I'm kind of getting a flavor for you know, how she comes across. Are most docs able to deal with patients like this, or are there some out there who just don't like patients who are this assertive? Uh, how do you feel about these kinds of patients? Uh, listen, you know, you have to meet people where they are. And, you know, on the one hand, you have to give people plenty of room, and as long as she's not doing anything that you think is going to compromise her medical care, then it seems pretty reasonable to let people take as much control as they want. I think, you know, where you have to not draw a line, but instead try to influence her behavior is if you think that it's going to compromise her medical care. I guess it's your impression that she's really not having any toxicity from the lipatinib? Correct. Eric, when you have seen side effects and toxicity, what do you see? With single-agent lipatinib, you know, it is pretty well tolerated. Diarrhea in some people, although that usually can be modified with a reduction in the dose, although usually not going below about 1,000 a day. Skin rash is, of course, less of a problem with lipatinib than it is with the more potent HER1 or EGFR inhibitors. And then some people, particularly people who have had a lot of prior therapy, have fatigue with lipatinib. But, you know, I think we're going to get a much better sense of the lipatinib toxicities in the adjuvant setting where all of the side effects aren't confounded by symptoms in the metastatic setting. And, you know, I think that a great example of this is with the aromatase inhibitors where, you know, maybe I was just missing everything, but when I treated patients with the aromatase inhibitors in the metastatic setting, I didn't pick up on all the arthralgias. And you do it in the adjuvant setting and, of course, that's a bigger problem, at least for some people. And I think it's because both patients will sometimes put up with a little bit more in the advanced disease setting. But I also think it's because there's a lot going on and we just tend to attribute symptoms perhaps to the disease or to other problems and less so to the medication. I'm curious what you think is going to happen as a result of this presentation by Joyce O'Shaughnessy at ASCO. Do you think people are going to start trying out the combination of trastuzumab and lipatinib off study? Are you? You know, I think that to a limited extent, people probably will. Again, the FDA-approved regimen, as we've talked about earlier, is capecitabine and lipatinib, and I think that that will be the regimen that still people will use. But, you know, in selected patients where there's a desire to try to avoid the chemotherapy, either because a patient wants to avoid it or there's a compelling reason to do that, or a patient, for whatever reasons, has had capecitabine before, I think in that situation, people will do it, and I don't think it's unreasonable. I would caution people not to then start combining lapatinib and trastuzumab with other chemotherapy agents because there we simply don't have phase one data for most of the agents, and there may be really unexpected side effects. I think we've got to be careful. A few days after this recording, Dr. O'Shaughnessy presented the data at ASCO commented on by Dr. Weiner. 
The bottom line is that this study of 296 heavily pretreated women with HER2-positive metastatic disease progressing on a median of three prior trastuzumab-containing regimens randomized patients to either lapatinib monotherapy at a dose of 1,500 milligrams a day or lapatinib at 1,000 milligrams a day combined with trastuzumab. As Dr. Weiner suggested, the combination resulted in a statistically significant prolongation in progression-free survival from 8.1 to 12 months and an increase in clinical benefit rate from 12.4 to 24.7%. The lapatinib-trastuzumab combination caused less rash than the higher-dose lapatinib monotherapy. However, diarrhea was more common with the combination. Overall survival was also greater with the combination, but only approached statistical significance when adjusted for performance status and extent of disease. More to come on this interesting concept, which provides support for the so-called ALTO trial, an ongoing international study evaluating this combined anti-HER2 strategy in the adjuvant setting.